Good morning. Let's pray before we dive into uh, the word. Father, we know that in our weakness and in our sin, we are incapable of truly understanding the word of the Lord. And so we pray this morning that you would, by your Holy Spirit, give us understanding that you would open our hearts and our minds to the truths that you've given to us in the Bible. Lord, we know that we can become distracted. So I pray that this morning you would remove those distractions from us so that we could commit ourselves fully to listening to the revelation of your will this morning. May we take what we've heard after the service, apply it to our lives, allow it to influence us in great ways, knowing that it has an authority in our lives that that no other manuscript has, that it is your word and not ours, that we should cherish it and follow it. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. Well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Joel Israel. Uh, My wife and I moved here just over two months ago now uh, to join the staff of College Park Fishers. And uh, let me just say that we have have mentioned now numerous times to people uh, just how blown away we've been uh, with how welcoming you all are. Um, I didn't say that to first service, so just the second service. You specifically have been so welcoming to us. Um, but we just wanted to thank you, uh, as I have the mic for uh, today. We just want to thank you so much for, for opening up uh, your homes in some situations, your time, um, and just, uh, just getting to know us a little better. Uh, we really have enjoyed that. Of course, this is my first time preaching to this specific congregation before, not my first time preaching ever. Um, but... Uh, if you've ever been in this situation, you know that it can be a little bit uh, of an anxiety causer to speak to a completely new audience. Um, there's so many things that go into figuring out what you're going to say and how you're going to say it and how that's going to go over with the person you're saying it to. And so I, I completely admit, you know, there's been a little bit of anxiety uh, in my own heart and mind as I've been preparing this sermon. So I, I thought a long, long time about what I was going to preach on. There was a, a lot of topics that we could cover today. There's obviously a lot of passages uh, that we have to choose from from the Bible. And if you've been with us for the past few weeks or so, you know we just concluded a sermon series entitled Following Jesus Together. And that focused on our brand new three step strategy as a church belong, grow, multiply. So I thought maybe it would just be convenient uh, and make sense to add a fourth step to uh, that new three-step strategy, you know? Um, And then I thought maybe that'd be a little bold, and it really doesn't work. Um, You know, belong, grow, multiply, divide, you know? I don't know uh, what the fourth one would be. So I decided not to do that. Uh, And then I sat down with Chris and just talked it over a little bit. And I said, well, what if I maybe introduce a new sermon series for us this weekend, and then you can kind of pick up where I left off. And he said, absolutely, you can, you can totally start a new sermon series. Uh, it just has to start and end on September 3rd. So <laughs> I would like to introduce to you this morning and conclude our new sermon series this weekend, which is entitled The Power of Prayer. Now, I chose this topic because prayer has been something that I've personally been challenged in over the 
last year or so. Uh, it's something that my wife and I have been recently discussing in our own home of just how can we make prayer a greater habit in our lives and in our family. It's something that we want to get into the habit of now when we're younger uh, so that as we have more and more issues in life, really, uh, as those issues come up, we become uh, more willing and ready to pray through those issues as we, as we have a family that grows. And really, there's one of the best passages I would say on prayer, maybe not the best, but one of the best I would say is 1 John 5, 13 through 17, our passage for this morning, because it just so eloquently lays out the significance of prayer for the Christian. Now, before we get into 1 John, as I said before, this is the first and the last week that will be in 1 John for the foreseeable future. So before we dive too deep into the passage, I think it would be good for us to provide a little bit of context or background to 1 John. Most theologians, at least conservative theologians, would agree that um, the letter of 1 John was written by the exact same John who wrote the Gospel of John, the fourth gospel in the New Testament. We can see a lot of similarities between those two books. There's a lot of the same wording. There's a lot of the same themes between the gospel and the letter. But we will notice that actually the purpose is different between these two things. So if we look at the gospel of John, he says to us in John chapter 20, verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ, or that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now contrast this with what he says in 1 John 5, 13. John is a great pastor because he waits to tell us why he's saying anything that he's saying until the very end of what he has to say. And so in 1 John 5, 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So in other words, what we have is in the gospel of John, John is writing so that those who have never heard the gospel before would hear it and believe it and obtain eternal life. And then in 1 John, we have a change of purpose. He is writing now so that those who have already heard and believed in the gospel would now know that they have eternal life. In fact, this word know, that is K-N-O-W, is used, I believe, 39 different times throughout this relatively short letter that John writes to his audience. So clearly, this is a significant issue that he wants to communicate. The idea of knowing the gospel and knowing that through it, you have eternal life secured for you. And the reason that he's stressing this point so much in his letter is because at the time of its writing, you had a group of people rising up within the church that are now known as secessionists. I doubt they called themselves that, but that is what we call them now because they started to secede from the church, to separate themselves from the church. And many people in this group actually started to take on a form of Gnosticism, which was becoming more and more popular at the time. Gnosticism was a belief that, first of all, and perhaps most centrally, Jesus' humanity was not true, that Jesus was not, in fact, both divine and human. And then also, they stressed the idea 
that in order to actually know God, to have a relationship with God, you had to obtain a certain level of enlightenment that was not available to every single person in the world. But it was a special enlightenment. And so as this false gospel became more and more prevalent in John's context, you had more and more genuine Christians in the church actually questioning whether or not they knew the Lord as their Savior, whether or not they actually had a relationship with God. So John stresses for us the idea that you can, in fact, know who God is You can know what he's accomplished through the gospel, and you can know that you have eternal life through Christ. So he goes on in 1 John 5, 13 through 17, our passage for this morning, to discuss not only the certainty that we have unto eternal life, but also the certainties that we have now in this life as believers, namely the certainty of prayer. So what I'd like for us to do this morning is just frame our conversation with four points, four truths about prayer. You can kind of consider them four hooks to hang our thoughts on this morning. And the first of these points is that prayer is the privilege of the Christian. Prayer is the privilege of the Christian. In verse 13, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And so not only do we see John's purpose in this passage of writing the letter, but we also see his audience. He's not just writing to anyone. He's writing to those who believe in the name of the Son of God. Now, the reason that this is important to us this morning is because if the letter is exclusive to Christians, then the promises within the letter are equally exclusive to Christians. So, for example, in verses 14 and 15, when John goes on to say that you can pray and God hears you, and not only hears you, but he actually responds and fulfills your requests, we need to understand those promises and bind those promises to the context of verse 13. Now, the reason that I'm so passionately stressing that point this morning is because my fear is that we have come to understand prayer as something that is so common, so arbitrary, so easily accessed in our world that we no longer understand or believe in its power and its significance. But in reality, what John says to us is that prayer is an intimacy with God that is unique to the Christian and has the ability to actually influence the decision and action of God. That it is not something that is common. It is not something that anyone has, but it is a privilege of the Christian specifically. Let me paint a more vivid picture for you. You as a Christian can stand up today and you can have someone who is not a Christian stand up right next to you and in the same place, you can pray the exact same words and you can even theoretically pray to the same God, 
But God has promised that he will hear your prayer as a Christian, and he has not promised that same thing to the person next to you who is not a Christian. Now, let me just illustrate this point a little more through an example. After I graduated Cedarville in 2014, I started to actually work for the university as an admissions counselor, recruiting students. And of course, this position required a lot of traveling. And uh, unfortunately, we only had a budget of around $100 per night for our hotels. So what became my favorite pastime was actually calling hotels and haggling the price and their rates every single time that I stayed in a hotel. It became like this weird addiction that I had. You know, it's, it's like a hobby. And so step one in being an effective haggler was joining the hotel's reward program. So me personally, I really liked the Marriott chain of hotels. So I joined the Marriott Rewards Club. And when you join the Marriott Rewards Club, you uh, get what they call the silver elite status, which sounds very impressive. And I know you are impressed, but just, just so that I can appear uh, uh, as equal with you, Everyone got the silver elite status, right? Okay, so it's like that movie, The Incredibles, where the villain says, if everyone is special, no one is, right? If everyone has the silver elite status, no one really has the silver elite status. It is just empty wording, right? So first step, become a rewards member. Second step was, of course, to call the specific hotel that you wanted to stay in. And I would say the same thing, really, every single time. I would call them and say, uh, hello, um, I would love to stay in your hotel in a few weeks as I'm traveling, but unfortunately, my work limits my, uh, my nightly rate to $100. And I see that your rate is usually it was between $110 to $130. So I can't stay at your hotel unless we get that price down to closer to $100. I would love to stay in your hotel. Is there any way that we can make that happen? That's almost exactly what I said every single time. And without hesitation, every single time, they would ask me, what is your rewards, me- what is your rewards number? And I would give it to them, and I could hear them typing it in. And within five to 10 seconds, they would usually say in the early phase of this process, they would say, Well, unfortunately, I'm looking at our rate and we cannot get that rate any lower than it already is on our website. But lucky for me, something started to change as I stayed at their hotels more and more and more because I moved on from the silver elite status to now being a gold member. So I stayed in their hotels a ridiculous amount of times over the year to the point where now, you know, they're willing to reward me for my loyalty to their hotel chain, I became a gold member. And after I became a gold member, something interesting happened. I would call and make my request to them. They would ask for my rewards number and they would type it in. Within five to 10 seconds, they would typically now say, you know, I think we do have a manager's discount that we could give you to get that rate closer to your nightly budget. Would that work for you? And of course, I would always say, yes, absolutely. Now, I want us to understand something about this story here. What I asked never changed. My request 
never changed. The wording that I used when making my request never changed. The hotel chain never changed. The only thing that changed between when they would not give me the discount and when they would give me a discount is that my status in relationship to the organization had changed. That at one point, they viewed me as someone who was just a common consumer. And then at a completely other point, they viewed me as someone who is highly dedicated to their hotels and I was considered a priority to them. That is exactly what Christ does for us through prayer. That we can pray the exact same things, we can make the exact same requests, we can pray to the exact same God, and yet if you are not a Christian this morning, God has not promised to hear you. Now, if your mind thinks uh, or works at all like mine does, your next question will probably be, how is it that God actually hears my prayers as a Christian and he does not hear the prayer of the person next to me who's not a Christian? And there's really two answers to that question. The first is, we have the intercession of the Holy Spirit. We have the intercession of the Holy Spirit. If you look at Romans 8.26, here Paul explains to us, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, some of us, uh, or some people would read this passage and they would relate it to the gift of tongues. I would not say that's really what Paul is emphasizing here in this particular passage. What he is emphasizing and saying to us, though, is that you and I are incapable, it seems, of offering up a prayer that is intelligible to God. And so God, in his love and in his grace and in his care for us, gives to us freely the Holy Spirit who acts as our interpreter, speaking on behalf of us to the Father so that our requests would be made known. So how is it that God hears our prayers? The first is uh, first reason is through the intercession of the Holy Spirit. And the second, what, second reason is that we have the atonement of Christ. We have the atonement of Christ. Again, Paul says in Ephesians 2, 17 through 18, and he, that is Christ, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. John actually says something rather similar to that in his epistle. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he says to us, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of of the whole world. So while the Spirit intercedes on our behalf and acts as our interpreter, Christ then acts as our advocate, and not only our advocate, but also our rescue from God's wrath in light of our sin. 
When I read this passage this past week, I thought of an article that I recently read about the president of the United States recently pardoning a sheriff from Arizona. And uh, I mean, I didn't do a ton of research on it. I don't know if the sheriff is guilty or not. But when I read the article, the first thing that I thought was, you know, it really pays to have someone of power on your side. I'm sure the sheriff would agree with that after he got pardoned by the president of the United States. Now, like I said, I don't know if the sheriff was actually guilty or not. I don't have an opinion on it this morning. But if he was guilty, then this is a great example of the limitations of our justice system. Because the best thing that our justice system can do to someone who is guilty is pardon them and remove the punishment for their guilt. But they cannot remove the guilt itself. Guilt is an objective reality. If you've done something wrong, you are guilty. You may have been excused for it. You may have not been caught for it. But guilty is guilty. And you and I were guilty. Not in any less of a way then someone who is not a Christian is guilty. We share equal guilt, equal responsibility for the presence of sin in our lives and in the world. But the beautiful thing about the gospel is that Christ not only acts as our pardoner for sin, he acts as our payment for sin. So that when we stand before the throne of God, We no longer stand before him as guilty. We stand before him as someone who has been forgiven, as someone who is considered blameless, as someone who is considered righteous in the eyes of God because of the atonement of Christ. And this is why we pray in Jesus' name when we pray. It doesn't do anything to pray in my name when I pray to God. It doesn't do anything to pray in your name when you pray to God. It doesn't do anything to pray in College Park's name when we pray to God. Because it is Jesus and Jesus only who has actually provided the opportunity to be heard by God because he has made us blameless and worthy of the presence of the Lord. So for this reason, John then goes on in verse 14 to tell us, that we can have confidence toward God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And here is here's the, the thing that I really want to get across with this particular verse, verse 14. Okay, be prepared to be blown away. This is very insightful. Prayer is communication with God. I know. I understand this is, this is not a new concept. I'm sure we all at least understand this truth about prayer, that prayer is a communication of God. And honestly, I really tried hard to be creative with how I was going to say this this morning. But the more that I thought about it, the more I thought it might be better for us to be more concerned with understanding how incredible this truth is rather than me trying to sound incredible when I explain the truth to you this morning, that it is an incredible thing that prayer 
allows us to communicate with God. And this, uh, this communication, John says, should be marked by confidence. So what does it mean to pray with confidence? Well, let me start by saying what it does not mean. Praying with confidence does not mean approaching prayer like an athlete approaches a game, as though it's something to prove ourselves, something to prove how worthy we are, how dominant we are. And it's also not approaching prayer as though God owes us something and we're just collecting on his debt. Both of those understandings of prayer would actually go against what we've already concluded in verse 13. That is that prayer is not achieved by our own power, but it's actually achieved by the power of the Holy Spirit through Christ to the Father. So what does it mean to pray to God with confidence? Well, because I'm currently in seminary, I feel that it is my obligation to tell you that the Greek word used for confidence is parousia, which literally means freedom of speech. So approaching God with confidence in our prayer does not mean praying with our chest out and our head held high. What it does mean, though, is that we humbly come before the Lord in prayer and we can be comfortable and free enough to say anything on our hearts and expect that God will hear us because he has promised to hear us. My wife and I have been married for just over two and a half years now, but every now and then she'll look at me and, and say something like, don't you ever want to just go back to the, the early stages of our relationship when we were first meeting each other, you know, the first conversation we had, uh, the first date we went on, the first letter that you wrote to me? And I, and I usually look at her and go, absolutely not, right? Um, I cannot even imagine the awkward things that I said to my wife when I was first getting to know her, okay? It's bad enough that there's letters, right? This stuff is documented now. So, and I already had to live through it once, but I certainly don't want to relive it. And the reason that I probably said all these awkward things is because I did not have all that much confidence going into our relationship. I didn't know that much about my wife. I didn't know how much she was interested in me. I didn't know how interesting she would find uh, my background, what I was interested in myself. And so because of that, I would say things that, you know, made it sound like, you know, wow, I'm great. You know, I mean, I would put this image on that was a little bit false, honestly. But that's not the picture that John paints for us here in 1 John 5, verse 14. Instead, he tells us that God already knows us, already cares for us, desires to know our requests, desires to know our situation, and he is desperately waiting to hear what you have to say to him. 
Some of you may be honest with yourselves this morning and say, confidence is not the word that describes my prayer life. And others of you may have gone to a brother or sister in Christ and even shared that, that you do not have much confidence or comfort in your prayers. And though it may have been well-meaning, I'm sure some of you have been told, well, confidence just comes with time. So keep praying, keep praying, keep praying. And the more that you pray, the more confidence that you will have, the more comfort you'll have in your prayers. Just give it time. Now, I understand why someone would say that. Someone has, many people have said that to me, actually. I understand what they're trying to communicate to me, but the reality is that's not actually what John tells us here in verse 14. He does not say, and this is the confidence that we'll have one day. He does not say, this is the confidence that we're going to work toward. He does not say, this is the confidence that we should really hope for. What he does say is this is the confidence that we have toward him. That because of what Christ has achieved, you and I can confidently come before the throne of God in prayer and know that he hears us. And and think about the distinction that this really brings to the Christian faith. That there's no one else outside of the Christian community that can make the claims here that John makes. That this particular promise given to us is so unique to the Christian. Let me show you what I mean. The Christian is not the only one who deals with anxiety. A Christian is not the only one that wonders if they have enough money in their 401k to retire in a year. The Christian is not the only one who currently has rebellious children and is trying their best to parent them. The Christian is not the only one who's dealing with infertility. A Christian is not the only one who is deciding whether or not they're going to remain committed to their spouse. The Christian is not the only one who is struggling to be single and so desperately wants to find a spouse and someone to spend their life with. The Christian is the only one who can make their situation known to God and he hears us. Christians are the only one who can cry out to God in our desperation and his ears are open. But as John goes on to tell us then in verse 15, God does much more than just hear our prayers. In fact, he uses prayer as a conduit for his blessing, which is our third point this morning. Prayer is a conduit for God's blessing. Read with me in verse 15. It says, And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Now, I'll be honest, when I first read this verse, I thought there is no way that John is saying what he seems to be saying in this passage. That there is no way that John's promise to the Christian is actually as broad and as general as he makes it out to be in verse 15. 
So what we're going to need to do is some hermeneutical investigation, really dig deep into this passage, study it hard, and figure out what kind of hyperbole John is using here to communicate a little uh, less significant and less amazing truth. But as I studied this passage more and more, as I read it more and more, as I read other people who had studied the passage more and more, I became convinced more and more that what John is saying here in verse 15 and even 14 is in fact exactly what it seems to be saying. In fact, John MacArthur even says that God has given us a blank check on which to write our requests and then cash at the bank of prayer. And you're not allowed to disagree with John MacArthur. It's just a rule. Now consider for a moment the significance of this promise in light of specifically the Gnosticism that was starting to take root in the church when John is writing this letter. Gnosticism believed that anything physical was evil that the body was a cage to the spirit. And in order to really know God, in order to really love God, in order to have a relationship with God, you needed to forsake everything that was physical and instead dedicate your entire life to everything that was quote-unquote spiritual. But what we see here in, in verse 15 of chapter 5 is that John tells us God is not just concerned with our spirituality, whatever we believe that word means, but he actually cares very much about our physical here and now. So much so that he wants us to tell him about it, to make our requests known to him so that he will fulfill them. God has made it his duty to hear the requests of his people and fulfill them. And I don't say that lightly or passively this morning. In fact, I, I thought long and hard about whether or not I was actually going to include anything like this in my sermon because it seems like it is such a bold statement, a bold idea that I don't know that I had the confidence to actually say it to our church this morning. But as I read this passage more and more, I became convinced and even convicted that John tells us God has committed his entire being to having concern for the requests of Christians. But before we misunderstand what this passage is saying, I think that we need to recognize one guideline that John gives us in verse 14. Because here, at the sec- in the second half of this verse, he says, if we ask anything according to God's will, he hears us. John Stott, a theologian uh, who wrote a commentary on 1 John, says in that commentary, speaking on this particular passage, prayer is not a convenient device for imposing our will upon God or for bending his will to ours but the prescribed way of subordinating our will to his. 
Jesus confirms this idea when he teaches his disciples to pray and he begins that exemplary prayer with our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then again, he gives us an example of actually doing that when he's in the garden of Gethsemane before he's about to be crucified on a cross. And he says, Father, let your will be done, not mine. After, the, after this sermon, after we conclude our time together, we're going to sing a song together that actually uh, speaks on this quite well, I would say. It begins with, um, God, I look to you. You're where my help comes from. Give me vision to see things like you do. I think that's an appropriate prayer in light of what John tells us in chapter 5, verse 14. That the will of God and his answers to our prayers will never contradict one another. That our prayer as a Christian should be in accordance with his will. And as a result, his fulfillment of those prayers is also according to his will. This is why we can listen with a little bit of suspicion when someone says something like, I have uh, decided to divorce my spouse, not necessarily for biblical reasons, but I prayed about it and God is okay with it. We can hear that with suspicion because we already know what God's will is for those Christians who have chosen to commit themselves through marriage to another person. That divorce is never the will of God. Because we know that the fulfillment of our prayers are never going to contradict the will of God. And this is actually why we should be excited, why we should even rejoice when some of our prayers go unanswered. Because if we make our requests known before God and they are not fulfilled, either one of two things is true. One, it could be that God is going to fulfill that request at a later date that we don't know yet. Or two, God has chosen not to fulfill that request because it is not in accordance with his will. So when we make a request known to God and he does not fulfill them, we can actually say with confidence that must not have been the will of God which means we are one step closer to understanding what the will of God actually is in our life. And John then goes on to make what I would describe as nothing less than an interesting statement in verses 16 and 17. He says here, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, the natural question to ask ourselves after we read a somewhat confusing passage like that is, of course, what is the sin that leads to death? I think that's a fair question to ask from this passage. 
It's a question that I asked myself when I was preparing this sermon. But I will say, if it's the only question that we ask about this passage, I would argue we're actually missing the main point of this passage. I would strongly suggest that the main concern of John is not the sin that leads to death. And the reason that I would argue that is because if it was, in fact, the main concern of John in these two verses, then we would not be asking ourselves right now, what is the sin that leads to death? If John was most concerned with communicating the sin that leads to death, then he would have been much more thorough in telling us what exactly that sin was, how to avoid that sin. So it's not the main point of the passage. And when I was originally forming this sermon, I actually had decided that I wasn't even going to speak on the topic at all because I wanted to keep our attention on what I believed was the main point. Then I thought, if I don't talk about it, then everyone will just be thinking about it and they won't listen to the rest of my sermon. So you win. I'm going to tell you what I think this sin leading to death is. Very simply, it is a complete rejection of Christ's gospel and God's word. Now, there's a lot of different theories on what this passage uh, is saying. There's a lot of different theories on what is the sin that leads to death. I'm not going to tell you any of them, and that way you can't disagree with my view. But uh, if you do want to learn more, then I would recommend highly that you call Chris uh, today. And uh, he's, he's on vacation technically uh, this week, so I'm sure he'll have a couple questions for you. But um, go ahead and call Chris and uh, talk to him more about that. I will tell you that the reason that I think that this is what the sin leading to death is, is because the context of 1 John would align with that theory. That, as I said before, you have these people called secessionists that have chosen to begin preaching a false gospel, and it would make sense then that John is going to tell his audience those people are committing a sin that is going to cause them to spend eternity in hell. And they should be, therefore, avoided at all costs. So, that's the prayer, or excuse me, that's the sin leading to death. The main idea of this passage, though, is this. Prayer is others-focused. Prayer is others-focused or not self-centered. Now, we may read this passage, verses 16 and 17, and wonder what in the world is the connection between these passages, between 13 through 15 and then 16 through 17. It seems like John takes a very sudden turn. In verses 13 through 15, he's talking about prayers of request, and then he goes on to the idea of prayers of intercession. So what exactly is the connection that we can make between these two passages? I would say that the biggest connection we can make is that both reveal to us the will of God. That in verses 14 and 15, John is telling us, pray according to the will of God. And then in 16 and 17, he gives us an example of what that actually looks like. That praying according to God's will means praying for brothers and sisters who have fallen into sin. So we can confidently say this morning 
that it is God's will that when a Christian begins committing sin, they will repent. That is God's will. The real question, though, for us is, is it your will? Is it your will when someone sins, even against you, that they, more than anything, would find repentance and life again in Jesus Christ? If it's not your will, then I would encourage you to go back and read 1 John 5, 13 through 17 until your heart becomes softened by the reality that that is what God desires most for those who have committed sin and claim to be Christians. So our first response when we've been sinned against or when we see someone sinning is not gossiping, gossiping about that sin. It's not making fun of that sin. It's not even confronting that person our initial response should be to pray to God so that he would give them life once again, that they would find repentance and return to the gospel that they claim to believe in. Now, I think that there's two practical applications that we can take from everything that we've discussed this morning. Very simply, the first, if we believe that prayer is in fact a privilege, if we believe that it's communication with God, it's a conduit for his blessing, it's others-focused, it's not self-centered, then one, we should pray more often. We should pray more often. Every opportunity we have in the day and in the week, we should be in prayer because we are rejoicing that God actually hears us, that we have access to God in such a unique and profound way that with every opportunity, we want to take advantage of that access. Two, we should pray more quickly. We should pray more often and we should pray more quickly. That immediately, whenever we experience any kind of difficulty, when we experience any kind of pain, when we have any kind of question or doubt, our first response should be to pray to God knowing that he has a power that we do not have, that he has invited us into a relationship that we could not initiate, and that he has given us a promise that is greater than any other promise that we could ever be given. We should pray more quickly. So let's not delay this morning then. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Well, Father, we thank you so much for your promise that you gave us in 1 John 5. I pray that we would commit ourselves to those promises, that we would allow them to actually influence the way that we live our lives, that they would influence the way that we pray, that we are confident as we approach your throne, knowing that who you see in us is not our guilt, not our sin. It is the redemption of Jesus Christ. And through him, you have promised to fulfill all of our requests, all of our desires, according to your will. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen.